Aaron Dykstra, and I have the privilege to preach this morning to remind us as our fellowship gathered here of a truth found in scripture. And I'm really excited to see how scripture speaks to all of us. Let's pray. Lord, may you be glorified in my communication this morning. May your truth be clear and may it penetrate our hearts and bring a realignment with the truth of heaven for ways that we've gone astray, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. I would like to offer you a moment this morning to consider your feelings, your motivations, and your attitudes about stuff. Yes, stuff. Like the shoes that you wear, the car that you drive, the tax you paid at the store yesterday, the Wi-Fi bill, your level of Instagram engagement, your 401k, your lunch at work tomorrow, your annual car insurance payment. Any heart rates rising? Any heart rates rising? I oftentimes have to ask myself, does God really care about how I feel when I'm shopping at Aldi or a Costco or the emergency Lunds and Byerly's? We ain't bougie like that. <laughs> Does God really care about the water level of stress rising in my heart when I calculate all of my monthly financial obligations? Does God really want me to live a blessed life? I've titled this message, Heart Check, which is defined as the self-assessment or reflection on one's emotions, motives, attitudes, and beliefs. I believe that we need a heart check in relation to our worldly possessions, finances, and the general cares of the world that can so easily pile up within our hearts. This morning, I would like to direct your attention and your gaze to a specific name of the Lord. And this name is Jehovah Jireh. It's almost like I'm married to the person that did the sounds this morning in the playlist. Uh, This means, in Hebrew, the Lord will provide, or the Lord who sees Jehovah Jireh. This name of God is referenced in the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, when God provided a ram in the thicket as a sacrifice in place of Isaac. This, this name joins many others, reflecting all different unique characteristics of the nature and quality of God and his relation to us. To name a few, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. We will be examining our teaching text today from Luke 12, 13 through 34, to examine what happens in our hearts when we forget that our God is Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees and who provides. And when we place ourselves on the throne of our hearts, taking ultimate responsibility for ourselves and every outcome of our possessions and cares and 401ks and all the things that make our stress level rise. It's a heart level issue. Because we realize that there is a difference between being an owner of something and being a steward of something. That's good. Therein lies the need for a heart check. Luke 12, 13 through 34. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And when I finish reading, as we've done in past weeks, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can please join all together and say, thanks be to God. Why? Because we're thanking God for his word that is alive and active and useful on February 25th, 2024. Amen? Amen. All right, join me in reading Luke 12, 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, 
tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and not living rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens they neither sow nor reap, and they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothed the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and the Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the fa- your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You didn't do it. Let's try again. This is good. Today, I'd like to direct your attention to three primary concepts in relation to what we believe about our Jehovah Jireh. So you can write these down and I'll reference these again. Number one, the thief of covetousness. The thief of covetousness. This is what happens when we believe the lie of the world. The thief of covetousness. Second, the gift of provision. The gift of provision. This is remembering the truth about God. The gift of provision. And thirdly, the blueprint for a blessed life. The blueprint for a blessed life. This is acting upon God's plan for our lives here on earth. The blueprint for a blessed life. First, let's examine the thief of covetousness. To covet is to directly disobey God, as seen in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20:17 says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But what does it mean to covet? I believe there is an important distinction that we need to make between coveting and envying. Coveting is when you want what someone else has. 
envying is when you don't want someone else to have what they've been given. The end goal of coveting is you have more. The end goal of envying is they have less. Coveting wants to gain something for yourself. Covetousness wishes to get what you desire. It wishes to accumulate. And covetousness has its root in the concept of comparison, looking at what others have and what you have or may not have. The struggle with comparison is, of course, nothing new. We can trace this pattern back to the very, very first humans on Earth. Adam and Eve struggled in Genesis 3 with comparison when they were in the garden and they were tempted to compare their wisdom and knowledge to that of God. Genesis 3, 4 says this, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, this, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Comparison and coveting God's wisdom and knowledge was actually the root of the original sin committed by Adam and Eve. Covetousness, wanting what someone else has, is weaved all throughout the story of scripture. Birthrights, power, authority, Position, possessions, spouses, you name it, and someone is probably documented coveting it and acting upon those sinful desires. Fast forward thousands of years to the night of the Last Supper, which we just talked about, and Jesus is preparing to be crucified. Jesus' disciples are all around him, and he would just ex finished explaining the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup when comparison and covetousness reared its ugly head. Picture the story, Luke 22, 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is at this table of mine. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them might be who would do this. It's probably one of the most tense, awkward, <laughs> could hear a pin drop moments, right, in the entire history of the world. And the most pivotal moments in all of history rest on the answer to that question, right? Next verse, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them about which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Just, next, like, just casually, like, yeah, we're about to betray Jesus, and then they're still bartering for position among who was supposed to be the greatest. Again, right in the middle of the literal, actual Last Supper, like the one that's depicted in famous artwork, there's covetousness and comparison alive and active. Now, of course, I know that no one in this room struggles with comparison and resulting covetousness, right? Our world today is built on covetousness. We literally have TV shows called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Social media is often an impersonal popularity contest with people putting their very best foot forward and hardly ever talking about the real parts of life. Society says we're supposed to have this much money at this age, drive this kind of car, wear these kind of shoes, live in this big of a house, have big enough muscles or a small enough waist. You name it, we've probably all compared ourselves to others in it. Obviously, covetousness has and continues to be a problem in our world. But why is it such a big deal to worry about how we compare ourselves to others? It comes back, I believe, to that heart check about our internal and our emotional posture about who God, our Jehovah Jireh, is. If we fail to see that God is our Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees our need and provides, then we fall into the trap of covetousness. 
a sin tied inextricably to want, a distortion of a healthy mechanism meant to draw us closer to God in healthy dependence upon him. In much the same way as pride, covetousness changes our minds into thinking that we are personally responsible for our own provision. It gives our own wants and our own desires authority in our lives as the best indicator of what we should or should not have. Coveting is also the origin point of many other sins. For instance, we covet what we take before we steal it. We covet another person's spouse before we commit adultery. While covetousness begins in the heart, it manifests itself outwardly, wreaking havoc in communities and families. By coveting possessions and things, we dethrone God as our provider, and we fixate on things of lesser value. We start to think that we can be satisfied apart from our God and our creator, attempting to find satisfaction in things in creation apart from God breeds distrust. We start asking if God really knows what's best for us. We start asking if God is really good if he hasn't given me that red Lamborghini I prayed for when I was 18. We start to think on the sliding scale of distrusting God and seeking satisfaction in the world and its possessions we actually start questioning fundamental truths about our own salvation. We start doubting passages like Colossians 2.10, which says that in Christ we are made complete, lacking nothing. We ignore Matthew 6.32-33, which says that God is our provider and he will never leave us in need. We ignore Psalm 16.11, which says that in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Covetousness is not only dangerous ground to walk on because it distracts us from the God's provision, but it's simply a foolish, worldly endeavor that takes a follower of Jesus and sends them on a journey for satisfaction in all the wrong places. As a good friend of mine, Teddy Roosevelt, once said, <laughs> comparison is the thief of joy. How true that statement rings in my heart. How about yours? Church family, I implore you, to not let the thief of covetousness take root in your own heart and therefore fragment your relationship with God and your relationship with your community. Consider some things that break down when we agree with the lie of covetousness. Romans 12.15 calls us to celebrate one another, which includes celebrating the success of someone that we may not be experiencing. 1 Corinthians 7.17 calls us to respect the position to which each of us are called even if your assignment or position within a community appears above or below that of someone else. Matthew 25, 21, and 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 calls us to acknowledge that we are merely stewards of the resources that belong to God, which inherently, again, changes our heart posture because we cease being owners and start being stewards. None of these spiritual directives are possible with that warped, distorted view of who our God is, our Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees our need and provides. Placing ourselves in the place of responsibility for ourselves leads to that tiring, circular, and unwinnable game of comparison and covetousness. Again, it's all about a heart check. Why? Because we are reminded in the wise words of Solomon in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to guard our hearts, for the heart drives all that we do. The lie of the world is the thief of covetousness. Point number two. The gift of provision. This is when we remember the truth of God. Now that we've seen the lie of covetousness and the path of discontentment and comparison, let us turn our eyes towards the hope that we have and that's found in, the God's, in God's provision. 
Remember that specific story of the Old Testament, seeing God providing the life of Abraham when he was commanded to sacrifice his only son Isaac, right? Which we understand, therefore, the name Jehovah Jireh. The early verses of this account in Genesis 22 recount, you know, Abraham's immediate obedience to the Lord. The next morning early, it says he got up and he prepared everything for the burnt offering except for the offering. Right? Imagine that conversation. Hey, Isaac, we're headed up to the mountains for the weekend. Go ahead and grab everything you need, the fire, the knife. Yeah, you know, all the usual stuff we bring for like a burnt offering. And um, just don't bring anything living, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Yep, it's just going to be me, you, nobody else nearby. Totally fine. Just a good old bonding time, father and son. We read this in Genesis 22, 6. Abraham took up the wood for the burnt offering, it says, and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried himself the fire and the knife. As the two went on together, Isaac, verse 7, spoke up and said to his father, Father? Yes, my son. What an exchange. Father? The wood and the fire is here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. You see Abraham's heart posture. Verse 9, when they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he said. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham was able to prove his heart posture. Mentions of God's provision are found all throughout Scripture. Provision is God's gift to us, especially when the world tempts us to chase other things that we think we need. Looking back at our teaching text, we'll focus now on verses 22 through 28. This is what it says. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, and they have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And then if you are not able to do such a small thing as this, why be anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory are not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Let's take a minute to consider three interesting lessons that Jesus teaches through this section of the parable. Taught by Jesus through three examples of the ravens, the lilies, and this very temporal or temporary grass. I believe that Jesus brings up these three examples of the ravens, the lilies, and the grass to show us in his provision, how he feeds us, how he displays or arrays us for his glory, and how he clothes us for eternity. First, ravens. I love how Jesus references ravens and then talks about how they literally don't have storehouses or barns, like the guy who was just building bigger storehouses or barns. It, show, it truly does show that Jesus is teaching us that no matter what our position, no matter what our place, that our Jehovah Jireh will provide for our physical needs, like our food. Secondly, lilies. Jesus compares the lilies to the field, in the fields to that of Solomon, stating that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, you guys might remember Solomon. Pretty big deal. 
1 Kings 10, 14-25. This is the message translation I'll be reading. It has some easily understood language and like more modern conversions and weights and measurements and things. This describes just a little glimpse of his splendor. Close your eyes if you want to. Solomon received 25 tons of gold in tribute annually. I did the math yesterday. That's $1,625,000,000 worth of gold annually. This was above and beyond the taxes and the profits on the trade and the merchants and assorted kings and governors. King Solomon crafted 200 body-length shields of hammered gold, seven and a half pounds of gold to each shield, and 300 smaller shields of about half that size. The king built a massive throne of ivory accented with a veneer of gold. The gold on the steps had six steps leading up to it, its back shaped like an arch. The armrests on each side were flanked by lions. Lions, 12 of them, were placed at either end of the six steps. There was no throne like it in any of the surrounding kingdoms. King Solomon's chalices and tankards, interesting words, were made of gold, and all the dinnerware and serving utensils in the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver. Silver was considered common and cheap. King Solomon was wiser and richer than all of the kings on earth. He surpassed them all. So obviously Solomon, no stranger to beauty and splendor, yet God, in his nature as Jehovah Jireh, arrays or displays the lilies as even more glorious than Solomon. And then talks about us as even more than the lilies. Solomon's like, wait out here. Jesus is teaching us that our Jehovah Jireh dresses us with beauty and with splendor. Why? For his name's sake. Thirdly, the temporal or the temporary grass. Thirdly, and I believe most importantly, the example of the grass describes how God clothes us for eternity. Don't miss this one. Luke 12, 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, or you of little faith? It is not just good to be clothed by God. It is great to be clothed by God. It's not just good news. It's not just great news. It is, I believe, the best news. God not only dresses us with beauty and splendor, he clothes us in salvation and in righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Jesus is teaching us that our Jehovah Jireh clothes us with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. This is the greatest news of all. The gift of provision is not only for the things that we think we need, food, water, shelter, but it's also for the things that we cannot attain in our own strength. Hallelujah. Point number three, the blueprint for blessing. So finally, we have to ask ourselves, what does a life then look like, right? That steers clear of this lie of covetousness in the world and stands on the truth that God will provide. God in his grace knew that we would ask. So let's take a look back at our teaching text and let the Bible reveal the blueprint for God's blessing. I believe our teaching text breaks down two ways God's blueprint for a blessed life, and it's in two phrases. One, being rich towards God, living rich towards God, and second, putting God's kingdom first. Luke 12, 20 through 21 reads, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Well, what does it mean to be rich towards God? Consider that story again of that farmer who built his bigger barns for his successful business and then is called a fool. Theologian and pastor John Piper provides some commentary on this passage by saying this, Why then is he called a fool? That's the question in the parable. And not only a fool, but a fool who loses his soul. Verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He was literally and tragically a damned fool. Why? Here's the way I would put it. This is Piper speaking. By the way he used the increase of his riches, he gave no indication of being rich towards God. He kept building bigger barns. That might be okay if you're storing the grain for a use that shows God is your treasure. But what does the farmer say? Verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have laid up ample goods for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He uses his plans to make his wealth one of, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the use he plans to make of his wealth says one thing. My treasure is relaxing, eating, drinking, and fun. That is my life. And my riches and my barns are going to make that possible. What's wrong with that? Nothing. If there is no infinitely more valuable God and no resurrection. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But there is a God, and there is a That's resurrection. Right. That's right. So what's wrong with this man's way of handling his riches is that he fails to use them in a way that shows he treasures God more than he treasures his own riches. Again, it's a heart check. The farmer was rich towards himself instead of God and prioritized his own treasures ahead of the kingdom of God. How then should we live? John 17 verse 3 says this, This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is life then? Life is knowing God, not compiling possessions. Jumping back to Luke 12, it says in verse 29, And do not seek whether you, what are you to eat or drink, nor be worried. For all the nations seek after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Amen. Fear not, little flock. I love being called God's flock. For it is, not your, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice that Jesus not, does not ask us to abandon buying and selling. He doesn't ask us to abandon using our possessions for God's glory. And he doesn't abandon or ask us to abandon building his kingdom here on earth. He simply invites us to have a right posture of our heart towards wealth, possessions, and money. Let's examine a few ways that we can both minimize the hazard, right, and maximize the helpfulness of money and possessions in our lives today. When, and only when, I believe we set our eyes on eternity, we can live rightly on this earth. In his commentary in this verse, Piper also lays out a few different ways that we can live richly towards God, our Jehovah Jireh. So I'll be taking those bullet points and kind of expounding upon them. I encourage you to write these three things down. 
the first thing we can do to fix our eyes and live richly towards God is this. Study to see and savor the supreme value of Jesus above all earthly things. Study to see and to savor the supreme value of Jesus above all earthly things. Oh, that it would be able, we would be able to say with one heart, joining the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, like trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. As the time-tested hymn proclaims, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The first thing we can do is to see and savor the supreme value of Jesus above all earthly things. Thank you. (laughs) Secondly, we can live richly towards God by doing this. We can pray that this knowledge would free us from the love of money. Pray that this knowledge, described in that first point, would free us from the love of money. Identified in 1 Timothy 6.10 as the root of all evil, the love of money is a trap that so easily ensnares. Pray so earnestly that the knowledge of a supreme value of Jesus above all earthly things would lead us away from this love of money, but rather that we would be able to echo this prayer from Psalm 90.14, which says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. How I want that to be my prayer. Thirdly, after we pray that this knowledge would free us from the love of money, we have to then trust that God's promises, uh, trust in God's promises for every need to be met. Trusting in God's promises for every need to be met. 2 Corinthians 9.8 reminds us that God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all times at all for all things, we may abound in every good work. Read that again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Once we remember that we cannot fail with God, we can allow ourselves to take some pretty dramatic and radical risks for him. Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard once said this, Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Say that again, that's good. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, he says, does not have to do with just the forgiveness of sins alone. Good reminder. So, Three ways that we can live richly to God. We can study to see and savor the supreme value of Jesus above all things. We can pray that that knowledge would set us free from the love of money. And lastly, we can trust in God's promises for every need to be met. And not from there say, cool, kick off our shoes and call it a day. But then to know that we are equipped to carry out every good work. 
I have three short testimonies that I'd like to share. And then I'd like to ask us a couple of maybe more probing questions. So maybe those heart rates will go back up like at the beginning. Three testimonies. And these are testimonies in my life and in the life of our church here that have shown that when we are standing in God's blessing and walking in line with what he calls us to do, then his hand will be over that. A quick story of the Dave. This is our Audrey and my apartment in San Diego, California. It was Dave on D Avenue, D-A-V-E. And I was sitting at graduate school and I was just kind of scrolling through, seeing a couple of different things on um, apartments and things in San Diego. Apartments are very hard to come by in San Diego. Like they're gone the day they are posted kind of thing. And so I, in God's wisdom, figured out how to go in the back of all these different websites using a thing called Appfolio. It's all the software that all these same property management companies use. So I just typed in Appfolio and the place we wanted to live. And I had all the listings, but I didn't have to go through every website. Anyway, God's wisdom. (laughs) And I figured that out. And we're sitting there at, uh, I'm sitting there at graduate school. And we find this place in Coronado, California. And D Avenue, if you're not familiar, just Google Flights San Diego. And that picture is from our street. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And we were so blessed to live there. And D Avenue and the Dave came about literally from seeing it to applying for it like 47 minutes from seeing it on the website to applying for it after walking through it in person. And we got it the next morning at about 9 a.m. And God's hand was over that place. And the San Diego crew knows, of course, it was a place of a a bunch of rowdy parties and, you know, very much like our house here. And, And so we were so thankful that God was using that as a beautiful place for us to start our marriage. Secondly, God's provision and grace was seen in my own life when Audrey and I moved here. We had two jobs, myself as a registered nurse and Audrey as a music therapist, that we were landing into. It was like a mattress that we were landing on. And that was a word that was prophesied over us. We could land lightly and we could just rest once we got here because we had jobs months before, three, four, five months before um, in one case. And so we just knew that God was going before us and showing us the way. And it was a confirmation that we were supposed to be following the Racines to the four corners of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thirdly, and this is a testimony from Tuesday. I love these ones because they're like, you know, hot off the press. Uh, I was going into Guitar Center. Uh, Some of you guys have seen Audrey and she's leading worship on what we're lovingly calling Lil Telly. (laughs) Lil Telly is this telehealth keyboard that she's been using to do Zoom uh, sessions with clients. It doesn't even have all the keys on it. And so she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's no keys when she moves her left hand to that part. And so Lil Telly, Lil Telly's been holding on strong. And uh, Lil Telly, yeah. But it's time for Lil Telly to rest at our house and be used only for work. And so the Lord has directed us to uh, be able to purchase a, a keyboard called a Nord keyboard. It's, it's quite a nice tool that we'll be able to use for decades. And so I go into Guitar Center. This is after uh, phone calls back and forth, resourcing it from Florida. It's an open box model. I mean, just everything. It's backordered everywhere. Anyhow, I get there, and I'm so excited. We're going to get 5% off because we got an open box model. I'm like, yeah. We get in there. We open the open box, and it's totally damaged. The Nord keyboard had fallen in transit, and there's a big old smashed corner of it. And I was like... Cool, 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 cool. God, give me a spirit of peace, spirit of peace, spirit of peace. And I'm trying to maintain my composure. And 
Then we go through and he says, yeah, I'll give you 10% off. I'm like, James, what should I do? What should I do? I'm on the phone. And we say, you know what? We're going to get a fresh one. So they're doing all of this stuff with gift cards and well, yada, yada, yada. They're figuring it all out. And, and then I realized that because we had purchased something that was more expensive and of greater magnitude, Guitar Center was like, ah, this is a new musician in the area. They sent me a survey. And the survey was like, oh, what kind of stuff are you going to do? You're going to record live? What kind of stuff are you going to do? 15% off coupon code at the end. Yeah. And so I'm like, hey, Seth, this manager. And I was like, so I did this survey this morning. Can we apply that to this like repurchase? And he goes, yeah, sure. So the Lord in his goodness and graciousness not only had me not walk out of there with a damaged open box Nord for 15% off, but sometime this week... No, 15% because of the damage. No, you said five. Five 5% open box, 15% from the damage. Or 10% from the damage. (laughs) That's my story. (laughs) Anyway, so so, total of 15% off. So I'm not walking out of there with a 15% off broken open box. But we'll be walking out prayerfully before Wednesday night with a brand new inbox completely... 15% 15% off north. So God is good. And I was texting James. I was like, oh, I was so pissed. But Jesus is good. Anyway, God provides. He sees my heart. Okay, let's transition to a couple of maybe more probing questions after we've heard all these things. I hope you're. Yeah, I know, right? I hope you're encouraged by these, and I hope you will be encouraged by the sound of this uh, keyboard on Wednesday. So, church family, let's ask ourselves, though. What might be keeping our eyes on the cares of the world instead of the riches of provision found in the promise of Scripture? What lies of the world have we been believing? And what are some ways that we've let the thief of covetousness steal our joy? In what ways have we forgotten the promised gift of God's provision, dethroning him in our hearts and putting ourselves on the throne of our hearts, responsible for all of our provision and sustainment? How have we lived richly to ourselves instead of living richly towards God, lacking our eternal perspective and falling into the trap of the love of money? I've mentioned this analogy before, but not following God's blueprint for blessing is like standing 50 feet from a waterfall and expecting to get drenched. God's blessing, like a waterfall that never runs dry, is immovable and is unchanging. And all we have to do is align our hearts back to the reality of heaven and stand in the waterfall. It's time for a heart check. Again, consider your feelings, your motivations, and your attitudes about stuff. Stuff like the shoes you wear, the car you drive, the tax you paid at the store yesterday, the Wi-Fi bill, your level of Instagram engagement, your 401k your lunch at work tomorrow, your annual car insurance payment. How would our life look different if we avoided the lie of covetousness and the unwinnable game of comparison like the plague? Perhaps it's time to get around the poor and reorient your perspective about worldly wealth. Perhaps it's time to actually delete that social media account that breeds nothing but discontentment. How would your life look different if you aligned your heart and your life with the truth of God's provision, laying aside worry and trusting him for every need? Perhaps it's time to let go of control 
and the need to be your own god over your possessions and your calendar. Perhaps it's time to honor God by living within your means, trusting in his perfect provision. How would your life look different if you built your life on the blueprint of blessing? Perhaps it's time to put God's kingdom first by tithing cheerfully and consistently to the local church. Perhaps it's time to take some more radical risks, knowing that a life built on God and his promises cannot be shaken. Let's pray as we close. God, thank you for the truth that you revealed to us today from chapter 12 of Luke about worldly possessions and about the worries of the world. We pray that these things would grow strangely dim in the light of your glorious face. I pray in this room that there would be ears that would hear and there would be hearts that would be open to receive and obey everything that you taught us through scripture. I pray this in Jesus' mighty, precious, worthy name. Amen.